Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. The short video for those of you who saw it is a series that we started last week called The Gospel Gives Meaning and we're walking through the book of Ecclesiastes and what we're doing is we're taking a look at how the gospel gives meaning to life and how the gospel gives meaning to all of life. In a world where people are searching for purpose and worth and for meaning, we believe that we have the remedy, we believe that we know how to find purpose, worth and meaning in this world. Even with the book of Ecclesiastes telling us that everything is vanity, the Hebrew word we looked at there last week was hevel, which means smoke and vapor. In a world filled with smoke and vapor, with so much hevel, with so much vanity, we believe that the one cure, the one remedy, the one response to that is found in the gospel. And so, as stated, our mission here is to make Jesus the hero. Teresa mentioned it a little bit, but each year we go to a place over in Eastern Oregon called Washington Family Ranch, and it's called, and it's called Man Camp. We're part of a network called Acts 29, and so the, network, uh, the churches from our network actually head over there, and so I would invite the men to join us for that. Uh, it starts in April. Uh, it's, it's the weekend of April 26th and 28th, and registration will start next week, so I'd invite you guys to that. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you grab your Bible, open it directly to the middle, you'll be in the book of Psalms, and if you hang it right from there, You'll find Proverbs, and then you'll find Ecclesiastes. If you do not own a Bible, there's some Bibles placed around the room. Those are black ESV Bibles. Want to make sure that you don't steal FCC's Bibles. But if they are black ESV Bibles, we've placed them there as a gift for you guys who don't own a Bible. Please take that and make that your own Bible. This week, we're going to look at this, that the gospel gives true pleasure. The gospel gives true pleasure. Before we look at that, we need to remember what is going on in the book of Ecclesiastes, is that we have this author who also takes the role as a preacher, who we believe historically is the person Solomon. And last week, he got into the pulpit and started yelling, vanity of vanities. And what the book of Ecclesiastes is doing is it's very raw content, very raw material, which is why some people believe that it's actually the author's name is hidden because of the raw material of the content. We talked about oftentimes books like this make us uncomfortable because there's layers of God that can make us uncomfortable. And so the Ecclesiastes for some people is a book that they just glance at, look at, they see vanity of vanities, everything is vanity, and maybe move on to the next book. But it's meant to be a jolt back into reality. But what we also need is all wisdom literature. We have other wisdom books but we need this wisdom literature to get a full picture. And the reason we have wisdom literature, it's a beautiful gift because it shows us what it looks like to live inside of the world post-fall. We believe that God created all things. We believe since then man rebelled against God. That's the fall. And we believe since then sin has permeated into the world. And so it teaches us what it looks like to live post-fall. So what we look at today is that the gospel gives true pleasure. I believe that we are all searching and seeking for pleasure. We are all pleasure seekers. And the reason why is because we are created by a God of pleasure. And pleasure is not a bad thing. It's not an evil thing. It's a good thing. But the reality is, is that we need to know what to find true pleasure in and what gives true and ultimate pleasure. I remember about a, it was a year. It was a year after we were married. My wife and I went on our one year anniversary and we were constantly seeking pleasure. In fact, when we are in the moments of the most extraordinary things, of the things that give us most pleasure in life, what we normally do even in those moments is we look somehow to get more pleasure out of those things, as though those uh, vacations are not enough. Oftentimes what we actually do is we put so much, uh, so much emphasis and so much weight on the vacations and on, on the extraordinary things in our life that oftentimes we go into the, to them and they never live up to give us the amount of pleasure and gratification that we ultimately wanted. 
The other words for pleasure that are synonymous are uh, satisfaction, gratification, but those are the things that we look for in life. Remember when my wife and I went to Hawaii, we did the same thing there. We're, we're, we're at this extraordinary place, this great vacation, and even there, we're constantly talking about the next thing. Well, here's what we'll do tomorrow. Here, this will be the next adventure. This will be the next thing that we'll find satisfaction or gratification or pleasure in, is we're constantly, constantly looking for the next thing. And what we believe is that it's the next season of life. It's the next thing. It's the next thing. Remember, we did that. In fact, we were constantly looking for snorkeling places because all the places we were told to go to just stunk. And we wanted to see a turtle. And so we were like on a mission. And like each night we were coming back on, here's what we'll do tomorrow. Here's what we'll do tomorrow. It was so much so that, that we could do that and that we oftentimes do that, that we can't actually be present with the moment that we're in and just enjoy that. It's always what's next. It's something else that we can find greater pleasure in, and that's the reality. I remember we finally found, uh, we, we were told this place we could go snorkeling to, and it was gonna be great, it was gonna be grand, it was gonna be the place where we could go, and there was gonna be like no one there, and it was gonna be the place where we could find snorkels, it was gonna be beautiful, and it was gonna be awesome. And we got there, and it lasted like 20 minutes. We showed up, and there was me, my wife, and one other person snorkeling, and the way that I tell the story looks different than my wife. Mine is a more dramatic version than hers. But we were out there, and while we were out there, the wind was blowing quite a bit, and so there were quite a bit of waves. But we were snorkeling around and looking at the reef, and then we got to the edge where you could see beyond the reef, and it was just blue, and I panicked. I did not like, the, I did not like it. I did not, not like the situation, for one. I, I'm a little bit of a numbers guy. There's three of us. So... I am afraid of sharks to some level, but the reality is, is I would just prefer them to have a larger menu than three of us if they were going to come around. And so there's only three of us in this whole area. And so I'm doing sign language to my wife underneath the water, vividly remember this, and I'm telling her to go up. I'm like, go up. And so we're going up, we're trying to talk with our snorkels, and I'm like, let's go back to shore. And she's like, you're being ridiculous. Let's enjoy this. And I was like, no, we're going back to shore. And so we go back underneath, and I'm like grabbing her leg again. I'm like, I was like, up. And then, and she's like, what? And then I'm like, we're going back to shore. And then she's like, no, I'm not going back to shore. So I'm, I'm confident at this time that Michael Phelps couldn't have beat me back to the shore. So I sacrificed, I, 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 I admit that I left my wife in the ocean. I went back to the shore. The, 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 the seed of the Reese family needed to continue on. And so I made the sacrifice for my family to go back to shore. But all that to say is that this was supposed to be it, and this was always it. It was, it was always the next thing, but then we get to some of these adventures or some of these things that are supposed to be grand and, and, and pleasurable and the extraordinary, and what happens? It was just a normal day, and in, in fact, it was kind of a mess-up day. I just sat on the shore a little bit cold and just watched my wife snorkel. That's how the day went. And I say that because this, is that each day we were like, what are we going to do tomorrow? What are we going to do tomorrow? What are we going to do tomorrow? Each time we planned something grand, like to go to Haunt or do something great, it was, those were the days that were like, eh. The, the moments that we enjoyed the, the most were what? The moments of waking up, having coffee, and just sitting by the ocean. Listen, those, those were our grand moments, not the extraordinary things of great pleasure. It was just the normal stuff. And I hope today what we can see is that ultimately what we can do is we can find pleasure in the gospel that, that will make the, the other things in life, the ordinary things in life, more enjoyable because we're not putting the weight or squeezing the life out of them for all they're worth. Let's dive in, chapter 2. <clears throat> it's, it's a pretty large chapter, so I'm not going to be able to, to cover it all, but we'll hit the big points. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is the preacher talking. 
He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So he's going to do a test. The subject matter is pleasure. The word right here for pleasure in the Hebrew is simha. It means to gladden. It means jubilation. It means joy. So he says, I'm going to test you with pleasure. And, and then he says, go, enjoy yourself. Subject matter is pleasure. He's going to do the test. But he tells us, it's like a spoiler, how it's going to work out. He says, but behold, this also was vanity. We left off last week seeing that, that, that our work and our toil is vanity. We saw that knowledge and trying to just collect a bunch of knowledge, that's vanity. And so now you might be thinking, is Ecclesiastes going to be a, a, a ray of light? And it starts off saying that this, in a sense, he's like, I went from the college campus of seeking knowledge and I ran out on the streets. And now I'm going to test myself with pleasure and see what else is out here for me. So what's he do? He gives a list of the things that he tried out, starting in verse 2. He said, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. So even in the test of wine, he said that he was sober-minded and that his heart, or, or, or that he was still guided by wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made even great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So here's what he says. He gives a list. He gives a list and says, here are the things that I sought to find ultimate pleasure in. This is really good for us. This is really helpful for us because this is, outside of Christ, the wisest man in the Bible. That's what he's known for. And he's saying, look, I'm going to do a test and I'm going to go out and I'm going to search and see what you can find grand and ultimate joy, jubilation, gratification, satisfaction, and pleasure in. And then I'm going to write about it and I'm going to tell you guys about it. And he does the list. And he goes to the list. Here's the thing. The same list that he went through is the same list that we all still try today. It's the same stuff, which he said last week, there's nothing new under the sun. So the stuff that we try to seek out and find for pleasure is the same stuff that the author's telling us, look, I tried it and it's all vanity. Isn't it crazy that if we actually listen to God and we actually believe God, that it would actually help us out and it would help us to, uh, to live better lives, full and abundant lives, not because God is seeking to rob us joy, but in fact, he's actually seeking to give us a grander and better life. Our problem stems from that we just don't trust God. We don't trust God's word. We don't want to listen to it. Same thing, parents know this. Our daughter today in the car was just driving me crazy. I told my wife, I'm like, just want to ask her what two plus two is, but she knows that one, so I was like, I needed to go higher and ask her what seven plus seven is. And she wouldn't be able to answer that, and then I would say, until you can figure that out, then come back and talk to me about some of these other things, because she just disagrees with everything. And I told my wife in that moment today, I was like, I think that's how we are with God. He lays it out for us so clear. He helps us out so much. He gives us the exact words, but yet we constantly argue, push back, and rebel against what he's just laid out for us so clearly. Look at his list. We won't go through it extensively, but if you want to write these down, you can. These are the things he lists. He lists laughter. He lists wine and alcohol. He lists building, in a sense, being an entrepreneur or possessing power and control. He lists sex, and he lists music. 
That's the list. It sounds familiar because those are all the same things that we in our culture today in the 21st century, thousands of years later, still use and still seek to try to find pleasure in. Let's look at them briefly. Laughter. We, I love laughter. Laughter is therapeutic. It's medicinal. In fact, people say that it helps your immune system. It improves your mood. It releases endorphins that help with stress inside of your body. But the question lies with this. Why are some of the darkest, saddest people in the world comedians? And why are they riddled with depression? Their whole lives is about making people laugh, yet they're empty on the inside. That's interesting. If you look at John Belushi, Chris Farley, and Mitch Hedberg, all comedians who all overdosed on drugs. Why is this? Because at the end of the day, our laughter also needs a hero and it needs saving too. Sometimes people say, you just need to be lighthearted. Sometimes we use laughter in a time where, in fact, sorrow's needed. Sometimes people don't know how to deal with pain in their lives, so they make a joke out of stuff instead of dealing with pain and allowing people to feel and experience pain. So he tries laughter, and like I said, I love laughter. In fact, one of my rituals to drive home is that on my way home from work, I listen to stand-up comedy for a few minutes, and then I turn that off, and then I just pray, and that's how my day's in oftentimes. Love it, but yet it can't satisfy and give ultimate pleasure. He, he lists wine and alcohol. This is the next thing that he lists in this section. But he said he kept his wits about him while he did this test. That's important to note. Here's what I'll say that what we see from scripture is two different things. And I believe what we're supposed to do is look at all of it and look at the whole redemptive narrative and see what it says. Because in Nehemiah, it says this, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved. But then it says, for the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, that is your strength. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 and 10, 19 tell us that wine can, uh, can make the heart merry and it can gladden life. But yet Proverbs, and this is where the balance comes in, Proverbs tells us that wine is a poor lover, a mocker, a brawler who will lead us astray. So what is it? Because it seems like we have both and yet we have a preacher who's, who, who's trying it. And it seems like this is what we can draw from it, is that it is a gift from God. But sometimes what we have to do is this, is that when a gift is no longer a gift that God has given us that we exercise control over, then we sacrifice the gift because it actually is exercising control over our lives and it is controlling us. And so when God gives these gifts and these gifts control you, I would say that's a good indicator that the gift is no longer in its rightful place of pleasure. In fact, it is the gift that is now dominating and controlling you. And so for many people, what you would have to do and what you would need to do is sacrifice this gift for the rest of your life because it is a gift that you could admit that controls you. And any person who struggles with alcoholism will tell you this, that an empty bottle never equals a filled life. Or a night of pleasure still has the same problem. Morning comes and so do, so do all of our problems with it. The reason I say this is because there are gifts that, that we have, but that we can sacrifice and give up. I'm someone who struggles with chronic pain 
And so I could get a prescription for opiates and for, and for pain meds. And if I'm being honest with you guys, the reason I don't is because before I started following Jesus, I loved them. I hear people often say that they don't like the way they makes them, uh, makes them feel. That's not the case for me. I love the way they make me feel. And so I don't trust them in my hand. So it's a gift that I could take to help with something, but it's a gift that I'm willing to sacrifice because it is a gift that I believe that could control my life. And he's saying in this is that these are gifts, but if these gifts become your everything and they become your ultimate pleasure, these are gifts that can have the ability to control your life. He goes on to talk about building and possessing power and control. Look here in in the text. He says, and starting in verse four, he's like, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Interesting that the problem in the garden was with fruit. And yet we're still looking at fruit and fruit trees to satisfy our ultimate longing for pleasure. He goes on to list all the stuff that he made, but yet you can give this big list of all the stuff that you make, but it's not going to give you the ultimate pleasure that you need. How do I know this? Because your new car wears off. Your new home is no longer new and you're looking for a new one. The meal wears off, the new bed wears off. And here's the thing, if you're in here and you don't own a home or you're homeless, the same thing. If that's your case or you're white collar, successful, Neither of these in and of themselves is wrong. But the problem is this, is that each person looks to the next class ahead of them to give them pleasure. The lower class is looking to the middle class. The middle class is looking to the upper class. The upper class is looking to the elite and thinking if I had what they had, that's what would give me pleasure. That's what I need. We always need the next class that you are not in and that's what would give you pleasure. Here, you're you're, you're looking at a guy who owns slaves. You're looking at a guy who owned people. And what he did is he exercised power and control over people. And he's saying that it was vanity. Control is vanity. Because if you're seeking through your life to use everything to gain control, it'll slip through your fingertips. What does he go to next? He says sex. One of the other things on the list is sex. And and here's the thing. I would say in in marriage counseling, what, what I've noticed is the three biggest problems in marriages come from these three things expectations, communication, and sex. And oftentimes your, your communication with, uh, specifically about sex and your expectations, they're not being talked about. For some reason, sex is the thing that, that every man in this room, for the most part, maybe not every man, but the majority of man thinks that it is that, that sex and a sex life greater than the sex life that I currently have right now is what would ultimately give me the pleasure that I need that it's sex and that it's more sex. And then if I had that, and, and here's a man who had, I believe 700 wives and 300 concubines. And later on, he tells us that it would have been better to have one wife. It, 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 he's a man who had full sex at, at, at his fingertips constantly, but he's a man who was left empty by that pursuit. And the same goes for us. It is a pursuit that we can pursue but talk to any married folk who has sex and God's intended design for sex. And the reality is, is that you wake up the next morning, the alarm goes off, diapers still need to be changed and life goes on. The, the, the ultimate pleasure you were seeking is now not there. I remember when asked in our premarital counseling, our counselor said, Rick, what are your expectations for sex? How often would you like to have sex? I was like, I don't think anything too crazy, maybe like once a day. And, and he literally goes, these are his words, two words. I remember them clearly. Easy, tiger. <laughs> Easy, tiger. That's what he told me. I, I was like, this seems practical. This seems normal. 
I would say this. I remember talking to some of my guy friends that were married. I'm like, it's like nine o'clock at night right now. Why are you guys hanging out with us? Like you guys have wives. Like you can go home and you can make love to your wives anytime you want. That's incredible. Little did I know that their wives were in bed sleeping because they're exhausted from raising children. <laughs> That's just not how it worked. I had such an unrealistic expectation on sex and what it was meant to do and what it was meant to be. Everything in our culture puts this pressure. Look, everything is sex driven and yet it leaves us empty over and over and over and over again. Music, I love music, it's therapeutical for me. I was singing on the way to church today. But at the end, the song will end, the sirens go on, and the crying still happens in our world. Music needs saving too. This is the list. He gives us the list. None of the things are bad things. In fact, everything on the list, in, in, in some sense, has the ability to be a good thing. They just make really bad God things, and they are not meant to be ultimate pleasure things. So now when we get to 9 through 11, I'm not going to read this section here, but what he's telling us is that he's, he's surpassed everyone, all the wealth of everyone else. He kept nothing from his fingertips, but yet what he realized is that all of it was vanity, just nothing to be gained under the sun. And then he rolls on into the next section, starting in verse 12, and he says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And I, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What event is he talking about? He's going to tell us. Starting in 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. That's the event that happens to everyone. Death shows no partiality. We can slow down aging, we can do what we want, but death will come to us all. In 17, he says this, So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What happened? He says this, the same event, the same thing happens time and time again to every single person in this room. The one thing that all of us have in common is that everyone in this room will die and everyone tomorrow is one day closer to the death than they were today. The reason why we don't like to talk about death is because it makes us uncomfortable, but not talking about death as living as, as though it doesn't exist or pretending it's something that we're not going to face. And so it's actually something that we should talk about because it is something that we should be ready for. Since we all have the same ending, our death should actually tell us a lot about how we should live our lives today. And what he's saying here is whether if you're wise or principled, good, bad, if you have good morals, death shows no partiality. Everyone is long forgotten. I thought about this. Our house was built in 1965. If the people that, that built that home were around 30 years old at that time, they would be 85 years old today if they're still alive. If they had kids around this time, their kids would be 55, 60 years old today. Our house and our houses that sometimes we can labor with a mortgage payment to try to pay off. My kids play in that backyard one day. My kids and that house will belong to someone else. The tool chest, everything where it's sitting now will no longer belong to me. We come in this world, even for young ladies, what you dream of is that 
I, I, you write in your journal, I, I just want a man, I want to be married, and I want this home, and I want it to look like this. And then the man comes, and you save all the letters that the man writes you, and maybe you put it inside of a shoebox, but then the man dies, and the shoebox fades, the shoebox fades, and then you need to figure out what to do with it, and you need to start making plans for exiting this world, because your husband has already done that. And again, if you're in here, and the position that you're in is not owning a home, what I would say is this. Talk to someone who does and who has everything and see if their wealth, their money, and their possessions has made them ultimately happy and given them the greatest pleasure in their life. There's one person who had that sort of pleasure, perfect contentment, Jesus Christ, homeless for all three years of his ministry. Death. It's not fun to talk about, but it's a reality that all of us have to face. He goes on to say something profound, and I think it's important for parents to listen to this. Starting in 18, I, I, I won't unpack all of this, but he just explains that again, that he hated his toil, that he told with him the son, seeing that he must look here, leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Why is this important? Because all that we work for to gain pleasure in this life is going to be handed off one day, and oftentimes to our kids. And here's the reality, is if your only legacy is a legacy of success that you can hand off, then you've given your kids something that actually could lead to their spiritual death. You can give your kids a better legacy by giving them the gospel and Jesus Christ and feeding their souls with that than you can with anything else. And what he's saying after all of this is that I've tried all this. He finally slowed down to contemplate. I'm doing all this stuff, but someone else is going to be sitting on this throne. Someone else is going to have this temple. Someone else is going to have all this stuff. What am I doing all this for? I'm seeking this pleasure. But at the end of the day, everyone is going to die. And most of us will be long forgotten. Then we get to verse 24. Last week, my wife said something to me about the book of Ecclesiastes. She goes, man, I was struggling. I was hoping there was going to be some light somewhere in that sermon, like at the end of the tunnel. Thankfully, more vividly, starting in verse 24 in chapter 2, we have this. It's almost as though he contradicts everything he just said. There is nothing better for a person that he, that, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Wait. <laughs> he just said that he found out that it's vanity to do all this stuff, but then he says there's nothing better for a person than he should eat or drink and find enjoyment in all of his toil. Look here, this also I saw is from the hand of God. So now God's name comes back up and he says, this is from the hand of God. Look at verse 25. We have to pay close attention to what the scripture says here. I don't want to lose you guys. For apart from him, so apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So what he's saying is a rhetorical question. Apart from God, you actually can't find or have enjoyment. What's the word there? It's simha, it's that word for pleasure, to gladden, for joy, for satisfaction, for gratification. You can't have that apart from God. Great, so how do I get it? He tells us in verse 26, here is what you guys need to hear. This is how we get this pleasure. For to the one who pleases him, talking about God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But look here. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. There's our answer. 
What you need to do is please God in everything you do. What you need to do is please God by not abusing any one of these things, laughter, wine, sex, music, anything like that. What you need to do is please God by being utterly perfect in your life. And when you please God and you perfectly please God, then what you get is you get his acceptance and approval and you get this full pleasure. But the reality is, is if all of us are being honest and we look at this list and all of us have to be willing to say, I can't do that. I can't please God. I haven't pleased God. If that's the standard for pleasing God, I have not done that. I abuse these things. I wring these things out. I try to use these things to get ultimate gratification and pleasure in my life. And you say, I can't please God. If, if, if God equals ultimate pleasure and the way that I get to God is by ultimately pleasing him, I can't do it. And that's a good spot to be. That's a great spot to be. So we have a slide with some verses on them. Great. John 8, 29, Jesus speaking, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for, look, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's awesome news. Jesus Christ is the only man who's ever walked the face of the earth who can say, I always and in every way have done everything that is pleasing to God, which makes then this the case. If what we need to do is we need to get to God for pleasure, and we say that we can't do it, then what we have to realize, according to this text here, the sinner has been given the business of gathering and collecting. Then that means that if we're not perfect and don't please God, that puts us in the sinner category, which means that we need to go out through life striving, being busybodies, trying to collect and find pleasure. And here's where the gospel comes in, the good news, why it's called the good news, is if Jesus Christ is the only one who's ever pleased God, then we need what Jesus Christ has. We need to make a trade with him. You see, the gospel is this. It's not something that we can get our hands on. It's not something that we can do. It's something that is given to us. So literally, Jesus Christ was in the business of collecting our debt. And he was in the business of giving us what we cannot give ourselves. And so what we need is we need a substitute. What we need is we need Jesus Christ and we need him to make a change. I would say this, the gospel that we have is a gospel of grace. It is a gospel of love. It is a gospel of forgiveness but it is a gospel of pleasure. And through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not only do you get a life that is fully pleasing to God, you get all of God's love, grace, and acceptance, but you get a life of grand and filled pleasure, gratification, satisfaction. The problem is, is that we don't believe that. I've got an illustration today. I normally don't... bring in science projects for the sake of sermon, but I hope this is helpful. Not fully prepared, I could use a key or a knife, but for the time being, got it, Ronnie? Thank you. That was a slightly cool and disturbing all at the same time. That was a, so, all right. Here's the only way that I know how to explain this and, 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 and do my best to explain it well. Is that what, what, what the cure for pleasure is, is Jesus. What Jesus battles pleasure with is more pleasure. If you read the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, read them. And what he actually does is he battles them all by going and showing how you can find greater pleasure in him. No one would take a lemon and squeeze a lemon into a glass like this and wring it out for all it's worth 
and I mean just get after it and squeeze it and squeeze it and squeeze it and pull everything that's in the lemon out like this and expect to have a full glass of lemonade. No one would do that. We would think that's crazy. We would think that's absurd. This is what I'm left with. But the reality is, is if you go to that list and you try to ring out everything on that list for all it's worth, the gifts of God for man, then what you're trying to do is you're trying to find pleasure in the things that God has given like this. And what you're going to do is just keep getting something like this. This is what you'll end up with. You'll end up frustrating because you're trying to wring out the things in this life to give you ultimate gratification and pleasure. Notice this. This is important. In the text, what does Jesus do? Oh, if it's wine you want, what does he take you to? He says that I'm the vine. Ultimately, what you need is you need to be connected to me because I can give you ultimate pleasure. If it's bread you want and it's food you long for, who does he call himself? He calls himself the bread of life. If it's water that you want, what does he say? He's the well. He's the living water. He takes you to things that we seek and find pleasure in and says, that, look, you are looking and searching for these things to give you purpose, but to give you ultimate pleasure. You cannot find it without me. And so literally what the gospel does is this is Jesus says, here's what I have to offer. A cup that's abundantly filled. A life that's filled with great pleasure. How do I know this? Because the next verse in, in John 10.10 10 would, would tell us this. Let's come back to that one. The thief comes only to kill, to steal and kill and destroy. What's it say here? I came that they may have life and have it. Parasus is the Greek word, abundantly. Parasus, abundantly. What's that word? Pleasure. What does Jesus do? He comes in and says, not only do I forgive, not only do I pour out grace, not only do I pour out love, not only do I pour out acceptance, what you need is this. What you need to know is in the depths of your inner self and in your inner soul that God is pleased with you. Every man and woman in this place needs to know that. What we long for is to know that, 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 that God is pleased with us. What, what we long for is the pleasure that only God can provide. And the only way to get there is through Jesus Christ. When we come to him, what he says, not only do I give you this grace and forgiveness and acceptance and love, what I give you is I give you God. And what I give you is abundance. I give you pleasure and he fills up your cup. The problem is is that we live life thinking that Jesus has only given us this much in the gospel. We don't have to fill this cup up. We don't have to try to do something. The reality is our problem is rooted in unbelief. We don't believe that he's filled this cup up for us. It's full. There's nothing you can do to take away from this. What you can start doing is actually believing that the cup is full. Then what you do is you get to the other gifts in life and they serve the rightful place. They're not the everything. They're just something that when you pour it on there, it just overflows. That's all it does because Christ has already been, uh, become your everything. He's provided the greatest source of pleasure you can have in your life. Everything else in life that you're trying to wring out that can't do it for you, he's saying that I have it. Even with music and even with songs, I love music, but here's what we need. Zephaniah 317, many of you are familiar with this. With this. We don't need a songwriter. We don't need a rapper. We don't need something like that singing praise over our life. We do need a song. We need it to be God's song. And here's what it says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with simha, that same word, pleasure. God will rejoice over you with pleasure. He will quiet you by his love and he will exalt over you 
with loud singing. Ultimately, the music and the song that your soul needs is to know that God sings over his children, a song of rejoicing, a song of great pleasure, and a song of delight. So what should we do? I'd say the same application is going to apply to every single sermon throughout the series. Is that what we need to do is pray that God would help our, our, our unbelief. Like, like the prayer in Mark 9, I believe, Father, help me with my unbelief. I'll say this in closing. You can actually start to enjoy the everyday, ordinary life you can actually start to enjoy what God has for you each and every mundane day. The only way that you can do that is by seeing what John 10.10 says. The Greek word there actually translates extraordinary. So what happens is Jesus actually becomes the extraordinary thing that you long for. So that in each and every day, you can take the ordinary, the, the mundane, ordinary things and you can find pleasure in them because you have the greatest source of ultimate pleasure found in Jesus Christ. Amen?